Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan And welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster of Freethink. This is episode 76, recorded on the evening of Thursday, October 5th, 2017. Um, I am joined uh, by Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, and Michael Moynihan. Hey. C. C. Moynihan. Michael C. Moynihan. Yeah. There's a reason for that. Is in the building. He's the national correspondent for uh, Vice News Tonight, which comes on on HBO. Or, um, I or, think I'm one of them, but yeah. I mean, like I've, well, he's, I've he's the cor- only one I've that matters. I've been corresponding a lot less because I'm working on another project that will come out in January. That's a long, uh, longer project. But in your heart, do you but really feel like you're the... National. I mean, regardless like- of the show, I feel that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do. I feel like I'm a national treasure, actually. Yeah. Um, um, and that, that, by the way, I will say that, that I do feel that way, despite a, a despicable hate tweet mm. that I received today, which I believe if I was in Europe... Uh, it would be a hate crime. Yeah. Um, you get this uh, expunged? Uh, yeah. Well, I'd bring her to court. I'd bring this woman <laughs> to court and I would sue her and make sure she never had any money again. How did she How did she slight you? <laughs> well, she's a racist, first of all. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and let, me, let, me, let me find this. Uh, and um, Melba is her name. Yeah, mm-hmm. nice name. I'm sorry. Wow. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You'll see why I'm doing this. That's a joke she's there. She's named after a popular toast. She is. Um, yeah, it's actually a very unpopular toast. So you can go fuck yourself. <laughs> on that one too um no who eats melba toast i got up and had some Mel- melba sabriel king huh. uh who is uh as uh, on twitter as melba's voice she seems to hold her voice in very high regard uh <laughs> and she said at we the fifth she said no offense to uh at mc moynihan that's me but punk podca- <laughs> <laughs> the podcast much better without his don rickles drag through glass voice <laughs> uh melba a couple things <laughs> I do enjoy your your witty tweets. Um, I haven't found them yet, but I'm I heard that they're, they exist. Um, I don't know if you ever heard Don Rickles, who has a has a very Brooklyn, I would say Jewish Brooklyn. That's his kind of shtick, and uh, he also has been since he was five years old in his seventies. So he has a sort of old man Brooklyn. I don't know if I sound like that, but perhaps if that voice is dragged through glass, that I would say I, that that's how it sounds. But so she. She was. Uh, doesn't like my voice, so I'm going to tell you. I, I will give a uh, throughout the show. I'll give a warning that I'm about to talk, and we can put a, maybe a time code in it so you can fast forward. But she said, "No offense to me." And anybody who is uses the cliche to start no offense is obviously intending to cause offense. So I did respond, "Go fuck yourself." No offense. <laughs> um, so Melba, did, I, you, did you really I respond? Did, I did actually <laughs> respond. That. I had a very bad morning. You know, you know, wake up at a bad night. I didn't sleep well last night. You know, a little too many drinks. And I and I and I got to wake up and I get Melba yelling at me. You know, who have always had a good relationship with. I know nothing. <laughs> I'm pretty about sure her. that was just friendly ball busting. It happens here. It's not. It's she didn't time. respond by the way. <laughs> 
Well, yeah. Not, not, not friendly. Yeah. Uh, I don't but, think it's friendly. Uh, there's the, the, yeah. the no offense uh, thing, which is totally true, by the way. The the uh, the flip side, the corollary, whatever, the inverse, the ob- obtuse, uh, is the uh, I'm a strong or I'm a firm believer in X, but. And the. Uh, uh, and then yeah, the, yeah, of which course. Which just means that erase the sentence, that beginning of the sentence, and the, what they really. Because they're not wow. a strong. Yeah, believer. that's true. That's true. I'm, so, a, I'm I, a strong believer in free speech, but yeah. the ACLU well, that's really what, is strong. Well, that's, that's right. It's what Salman Rushdie is called the Butt Brigade. You know, was, uh, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in favor of free speech, but. And uh, today, uh, speaking, we can just dive into a quick news story before we pivot to the big ones. Is that there's a story this morning, New York Times reported um, that there was a letter sent. They didn't post the letter. I did obtain a copy of the letter and later in the day. Uh, National uh, correspondent. From, <laughs> I get everything, man. I get tweets from Melba. I get letters. <laughs> I get leaks. Um, I get people making fun of my voice. Go fuck yourself. Uh, but <laughs> if you had to do a reckless, you, you'll later on as the uh, Johnny Walker gets yeah. more. Yeah, we'll, we'll, there's, we'll there's, there's, there's a bit in Dirty, Rickles. the great film Dirty Work, the uh, Norm Macdonald film, uh, where Donald Rickles has a very brief appearance in it, alongside Kevin Farley is also uh, 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 what's his name, Chris Farley's brother. But uh, there's a bit in there is very funny. I can do that. I'll do that yeah. bit. Well, before, later, before later. you before you open up that, well, that story, ACLU story. I know, yeah. I know. I want it's I want to bring it back. Story. I know, I know, I know. There's a couple of housekeeping things. First what? and foremost, our, our very good friend Anthony Fisher is uh, on the controls on oh, that headset thing out there. I mean, he's going to weigh in from time to time. I don't want his Watching voice of God game. to scare you. He's still, yeah. No, he's not. He is paying attention and making certain that the levels are right mm. because he's a good man and he's yeah. about his business. I am you know, about that business. Damn right. And, and you, I do it all. And you know who else is also about their business? James Lockhart. There was an event at Cato last week and uh, it was a free speech thing. So this is a good setup for the thing that's coming later. Yeah. Point of hand. Um, but as soon as I walk in the door, um, someone says my name and I look up And it is this wonderful angel, this beautiful, beautiful man, James Lockhart. And James says to me, I have something for you. Okay. And I follow him downstairs. And James, (laughs) James. Stop, 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 stop. I have something for you. Follow me downstairs. Would you like to see me take a shower? Because I'm a very trusting person. I was at at Cato. I knew I would be fine. That's literally Um, the worst thing I've heard. (laughs) It's exactly where you know you're going to get Harvey Weinstein. (laughs) James has this bag. Yeah. It's huge bag. And James has a huge bag that he showed you in the basement. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's filled with bottles of alcohol. Yes. Yay. One James. One for each of the three of us in the room. He did say that he was sorry that he didn't have something for Fisher and for uh Dan Beer, but one for each of us in the room. Oh, and, that's great. And actually, per our preferences, yes. this is for you. So why are, why, are we drink, for you. why are we drinking and draining the one that's for me? And we're not drinking the ones that are for you we're guys. We're celebrating Yeah, but together. celebrate with your shit. You're saying I you don't want to no, share is no, what you're saying. No, fuck no. To me, I think <laughs> that's why we do this podcast. We're, I don't want to share. We're celebrating because we missed Michael uh, yeah. so much I know. last week. Yeah, this is true. Even though Catherine was kind of... Was she wasn't better, but like she was, no, she she was, was good. She like she came, she showed up. But I wanted to say thank you to James and I greatly appreciate it. What is she, a fucking presidential assassin? Why does she have three names? <laughs> Catherine, I mean, like, what's up, Mark David Chapman? She doesn't even pronounce the middle one right. It's like Mangi. Yeah, I know. She thinks she's like a, like a, like works at the Romanian post office or something. She's like, Mangi. Yeah, no, it's not, it's not cool. <laughs> Catherine, I love you, but, you know, just stop trying to take okay. my job. We're not, we're not going to replace you. It's fine. Yeah. Um, but, you will but, yeah, not so... replace us. <laughs> That's the Nazis at Charlottesville. Hey, yeah, just so I, you know. I'm, I'm, thrill- I'm thrilled that the he's, he's punch, punching in too much. <laughs> Cut his mic. Cut uh, his mic. So 
So we were talking about free speech. I, I was talking about that at Cato. I also talked about it at Rutgers um, earlier this week. Uh, I had the weird experience of being part of an event that is being protested where there are police officers. There's a gauntlet of security guards who are checking bags and doing all of these things at for the Cato. students. No, no, this is at Rutgers. Oh, this is at Rutgers. 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 Yeah. 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 Um, and um, I mean, I, I get inside, we, we do the event. I open in my magnanimous way and I am very gracious. And I say, we all agree and we care about the same things. We might have different approaches. Let's work on these things together. Um, within 15 minutes, kids are standing on their chairs, screaming Black Lives Matter. They're standing up, disrupting the entire event. They really? ask for questions from the audience. Rather than raise your hand and be called since no one's hand rushed up right away and you would have been either first or second. You just wait until we select someone, hand them a mic, and you run up to the front of the room and say, I'm just going to stop this right here. Well, no. That's how it went? That's not how this works. Um, you know what? It wasn't completely unmoored and ridiculous. Uh, at some point, we were able to reel it in, and I suspect that my, um, my pigment was helpful in allowing me to calm the storm uh, a little bit. You was black. <laughs> you some black sense? I didn't. No, no. You should have. No, I kept it very proper. She should have gone like full like Eddie Murphy and Mulan. I was, I was in presentation mode. Right. Um, and I was a little flustered um, because there's something really unsettling about being in a place like that. And I know, Moynihan, you've visited some of these campuses mm. where, where upset is happening. Yeah. Um, it's a bit different to be at the center of one of those storms. And this is hardly anything like what is going on at, at Berkeley. Um, this very much feels like sort of a B, B team situation uh, in terms of the level of upset and outcry. And even afterwards, I talked to some of the kids um, and okay. adults who were there. Who and there were a lot heckling. of fifth, fifth column fans there as well nice. who were not Great. heckling yeah. um that would be really, that'd be really bad if there was it was yeah. weird they're <laughs> super drunk yeah <laughs> they kept on asking me to come to the basement yeah. to check out their bags <laughs> I which i, I would have done yeah look at my bag so now, so now you know that i'm a trusting soul and if you catch me on the street just say hey follow me around this corner here i've you got know, something for you you know this is no offense to you camille foster because it is it is um a great detriment to our culture that more people don't know the name camille foster many people do more huh. Should and I agree. Uh, that's hard to spell. It's it's it's, it's hard to spell, um, and people just always think of um, Bill Cosby's wife. <laughs> and so the the the, the thing God, about this is that soul. I'm going to guess she's still alive. I'm going to guess that most of the people that were there protesting and protesting you didn't know who you were. Right. I think that's probably, probably safe true. to say. Yeah. And you notice that it's just this reflexive thing. It's just, it's, you know, if you're talking about free speech, it is now the reflex to actually protest some panel about free speech because that grounds much to the shame of a lot of people on the progressive left, um, with a lot of exceptions too, by the way, I should say that, um, has been ceded to people who aren't of the progressive left. So then it becomes something that you instinctively go and protest. You saw the thing that Robbie Suave uh, wrote about and is now gone, I think because of the post that he wrote, has now gone kind of viral. And it happened, I think, over a week ago, maybe 10 days ago, at the College of William and Mary, somebody from the ACLU who was coming to talk to students about their free speech rights and about their First Amendment rights was shut down uh, and protested by Black Lives Matter activists. 
who then the great irony of this video is he says, you know, I'm here to to talk about your free speech. And then they shut the mm-hmm. speech down. Mm-hmm. And he at the beginning seems to ha- be quite happy about this and says, yeah, this is what we're here for, about protest and about speech. And then they shut his speech down. And as students were trying to discuss the matter with him after the fact, the protesters formed a cordon, you know, not sanitaire, a filthy cordon around <laughs> around him to prevent people from actually having a discussion with him about these about these issues. Uh-huh. And and this guy who had, you know, in, 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 I don't care about this stuff, but in the world where identity matters more than anything, is that who had a Hispanic name and was working for the ACLU. Claire Gaston Yaga. Uh, was that the guy, the speaker? Yeah. Uh, I think there were two. There's another one. Uh, but, but, uh, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and work for the ACLU was, was, was shouted down mm-hmm. for t- trying to talk about free speech on, on campus. Not even a controversial subject. It's not, we have to remember this, that it's not about. Milo Yiannopoulos, Theodore Papadopoulos, any of these people, nobody cares about them in particular, will pretend that it's hateful and it's not safe and all this stuff. But if you're even discussing the issue of speech from the perspective of the ACLU, who these, you know, halfwit students have no sense of history, don't know what the ACLU is about, which, you know, has been around for a long time, but most people remember the ACLU from the Skokie March in Skokie, Illinois, when neo-Nazis wanted to march through a Jewish, a largely Jewish neighborhood, a lot of it in the 70s too, a lot of Holocaust survivors, uh, in the suburbs of Chicago. And the ACLU defended their right. The guy who actually, little known fact, the guy who actually led that march, the Obersturmbannführer of the local uh, Nazi party, turned out later to be Jewish. Yeah, sure. Uh, it always kind of happens that way, doesn't it? They're just like, you know, self-haters and weirdos and the rest of it. But that's what we know the ACLU for. The point of this always, why do we have to remind people of this? That defending free speech rights is not defending the fifth column. Nobody, maybe people want to take us, maybe they want to take, shut Camille up on campus, but generally we are in, in this, in the large spectrum of speech, not that controversial. People yeah. are not trying, it's for the people who have repugnant views. And so they're there shutting them down um, with signs that you defend Nazis. What is the, the problem with that formulation? Mm-hmm. No, they don't defend Nazis. They defend the rights of Nazis. Nazis are horrible. It's very easy to hate Nazis. That's the thing that where you have to challenge yourself. I like hating Nazis because Nazis are horrible. <laughs> I like hating the Klan because the Klan's fucking horrible, right? But it, it, because you have horrible and stupid ideas does not mean, and why do we have to keep saying this, that you forfeit your constitutional rights. And that's what the ACLU exists for. And now the kids protesting this, and I'll wrap this up quickly, and the kids protesting this are kids. I don't, you know, they're college students. They're ding-dongs. They're going to change their minds on a lot of this stuff. We hope. But there was a, we hope. But there was a letter today the New York Times reported on 200 members of the ACLU. I believe that sort of national chapter, might even be local chapters, said they don't want the ACLU defending the rights of the, the people that were marching in Charlottesville. Yep. Um, and they don't want to be associated with that because the power of white supremacy um, is so great in this country that we're only adding to its power by defending them. And I, I'll give credit to Glenn Greenwald uh, this morning who tweeted in response to this time story. What organization did they think they were joining? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think that um, a <coughs> friend of mine at work, and I'll give her credit for this, was I was telling her about this. 
and we were talking about it, and she said something I thought was very smart. She said, I think that after the travel ban and after that day, which had a sort of record number of individual donations to the ACLU after the travel ban and people, you know, getting people out of jail that were at airports and the rest of it, that a number of people thought this was just a progressive organization. It's the anti-Trump mobilization. Yeah, it's a resistance movement to Trump, which, you know, I mean, the ACLU is not a progressive organization. It is run and operated by progressives. I think that's largely true. I mean, there's a few kind of stragglers here and there, but I think it's mostly that's the case. But don't conflate that with the fact that there are very good people that do very good work on a lot of issues. I mean, at times you disagree with them, of course, but they're very principled. And these people that are members of the ACLU, um, that are prominent members, are now leaving the organization because they don't like the principle. Yeah, I think the number of the total, the 200 was out of a global number, I think, of 1300 members of whatever ACLU organization is. So, Amanda, that's 15 percent of the membership of the workers, the ACLU. I worked there. Yeah, I chose to join the American Civil Liberties. Wait, sorry, 15 percent. There's the 200 uh, people who signed it. Uh, I, oh, it counts. It's about 15% of that. Yeah. It's about 15%, yeah, yeah. but it's a real sign that we're moving to a, a new place where it, it is ceasing becoming popular. And already the ACLU, I mean, it favors and it can do whatever the hell it wants. It's the ACLU and it's done so many great things. It's, it is focused uh, primarily on issues of speech. Uh, things like surveillance and the Fourth Amendment. They're, they're all about the first and the fourth. They don't want to touch the second with a 5,000 yeah, foot pole. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, that has come up in these things. They they have changed their minds on defending the speech rights of protesters who carry guns. And that was uh, under duress from their members who were like, no, come on, we can't do that because guns are uh, evil and sick and wrong. Um, and so this this is part of what we've been talking about for 10 years, or as long as I've known uh, Moynihan at least. Um, uh, like you can you can watch in real time the steady drip drip of what used to be a pretty strong sense of uh, free speech on the left uh, eroding. And let's be clear, it was eroding, you know, when the satanic verses came out. I mean, that yeah, for sure. it was it, it's it's been a problem for 27 years, at least, um, uh, if not more. But uh, there seems to be an accelerant going on right now. And it's and it's uh, it's very troubling. Well, I think one of the reasons for that is that is that, you know, the free speech butt brigade always had a very hard time um, justifying that. But I mean, you would say sensitivities, et cetera. But there has been that shift. And I think we've probably talked about it here before. We've done a number of these shows. God knows what we've talked about at this point. <laughs> but I know that, that we've probably talked about this Cosby and rape this um, (laughs) but this shift um, to reclassify speech as violence Uh Um, and we see that more and more and more and you say that to the average person who doesn't follow these debates and they say what on earth are you talking about and yeah well I mean if you reclassify speech as an act of violence then you're protecting somebody against an a violent Absolutely. act. Yeah. It's a very simple thing, right? Yeah. And so all of a sudden you say, look, I mean, this is this is doing violence and visiting violence upon X, Y, and Z person, then it's much more justifiable to say, like, we need to shut down this violence. Or to say that this speech, um, you know, creates violence, it creates the conditions of violence. And of course, you always have this, this throwback to fire in a crowded theater, et cetera. But when you talk about this, I don't believe this. I think it's I think one of the problems is the narrative that we what we see quite a bit today is that that we live in a society which is end to end chock-a-block with white supremacists. And so therefore, I mean, you know, Donald Trump is elected, you know, 60 million people voted for him. All of those are either white supremacists or complicit in white supremacy. So that's a very common argument. I hear this quite a bit. But, you know, the thing that 
troubles me about this is that why is Richard Spencer on television so much? Why is it's the Fred Phelps effect? You know, I mean, Fred Phelps was the Westboro Baptist Church was, you know, the God hates fags people mm-hmm. were eight represent reprehensible, 15 reprehensible people, most of whom were within his family. There was did not constitute a movement. This was not something that was in danger of taking over a local legislature in Wichita, uh, Kansas, which was where he was from. And it's not the same thing as true with Richard Spencer. Do these people exist? Do they have a bigger megaphone and platform now? Yes, and half the time we give it to them because what it does is it allows us to to put forward this idea that America is in the grip of a white supremacist mania and look at Richard Spencer and he's on TV all the time. And it's like, there's like 150 people probably that support this guy. I mean, at his little thing in DC, it was probably Mm -hmm. 100 people. You know, the Charlottesville March, which is a global march where people from other countries that were there, managed, I think, 300 people, something like that. We're a nation of 330 million people. It's pretty small beer. You can get more people at a furry convention. I don't think we're in any danger (laughs) of being overrun by the furries. I don't think that this stuff isn't a problem. I don't. I think this is a problem and it should be combated vigorously um, with debate. But I don't believe also that, that my friends and people I don't know and my um, compatriots across the country are going to look at the Daily Stormer and be convinced by it. So we have to shut it down. But that that very much is, I mean, when I went to Cato, we were talking about the recent poll that they did um, on sort of free speech, uh, attitudes about free speech. I believe yeah. it was Cato and YouGov. And the stuff that really stuck out to me when, after I reviewed it was the fact that everyone agreed on how wonderful free speech is. Um, and even on the complaint of doing things like, say, defining what hate speech is. 82% agreed with that, um, that sentiment. Um, the, the difficulty really does come down to a sense of what is, in fact, dangerous, that you can say things that will endanger a particular group or say things that will inspire people to hate. Um, and I've found that at both the, the events on campus and um, in the polling data, and it's there's another poll from Brookings that Brookings. sort of echoed much the same thing. And that was a, poll a terrifying poll. The yeah. Knight Foundation yeah. that echoes much the same thing. Yeah. There is the, the re... It's not even a, a, a redefining. Um, I, I think I refer to it as like a migration of meaning where we have a sensibility uh, about free speech um, now that is sort of a quaint idea, but it's a quaint idea that is safe, that is padded, and that we can utilize without having any fear of what might happen. Um, and I think there is a, a connection between the conversation that we have about speech rights and even the conversation uh, about gun rights, uh, for example, um, in the sense that guns are a thing that are dangerous. We do have this constitutional protection um, that allows people to own guns in this country. Uh, we don't have to get into, and I'd, I'd really prefer to avoid, I think, like a, a really uh, robust philosophical conversation about whether or not guns should be legal. But I do think that the potential danger of words, and of course words can have danger. I could threaten violence. I might be able to inspire someone to do something violent. But in order to better safeguard all speech, we have to accept a certain amount of danger associated Absolutely. with our way of life, a certain amount of of distasteful and even displeasurable things. Um, and I mean, it's it's almost boring at this point to, to keep having to highlight, and not boring, boring is the wrong word. It is... It makes me a little sad. I I left the event at Rutgers a bit despondent because these kids just don't seem to get the fact that 
this particular right, the right to say unsavory things at un, at times when it was unpopular to say those unsavory things, which we now believe are wonderful and virtuous, that having that right is essential and having people that were willing to defend that right was essential. And that in much the same way, yeah, we do have like a Second Amendment protections. And of course, there are risks to having yeah. guns in our society, but that is a right that we have. If we, we're going to have conversations about how to compromise it. Should hysteria, should hysterical, frantic, energetic activism be the response to all of the things that make us afraid, be it dangerous speech or people who have bump stocks on their guns? Like, should hysteria drive policy? And I think we've seen with stuff like um, 9-11 and various other places that no, good policy generally doesn't come out I've of hysterical that. panics. Uh, and and I, I just want to uh, stick my chin out and get punched by uh, uh, all the libertarians who don't think that I'm a libertarian. So, like, <laughs> I don't, if you want to ban bump stocks, do it. Well, the NRA is fine with it, too. The NRA so. is fine with it. I'm, I, I've now agreed with the NRA about something like And by the way, quick, quick thing on that. Um, a journalist friend of mine was talking to the person who created them today, and I'm not going to ruin his story on this. But it, this has not been reported, as far as I can tell, is the person who created the bump stock, um, they were banned by the ATF. And the patent was used by another company um, and slightly modified. And they, so they already actually have been banned uh, once before. I was told this before I left the office. Somebody was a very, very good reporter. And I, I was on of this and the guy had his patent used by somebody as the base patent is used by this other person is a slight modification to something that's previously been banned so and i have no problem with that no automatic machine guns are, are basically banned um, that's fine since i think it's, it's 1934 fine. or something it, yeah. it, it's that that's fine it's yeah. okay i mean yeah. the the mcdonald and heller cases in 2008 and 2010 affirmed the second amendment as being an individual right which means you can own a handgun within a huge range of possible regulation of it uh and that seems to me and there's a lot of fights associated with it and i might be on this side of this fight and that and that side of the other fight mm -hmm. but like Bump stocks, which uh, essentially give you a, a single trigger pull. It's not exactly what happens because you're dealing with recoil and it's, right. it's complicated. But yeah, um, it uses the force of recoil but, to, to, uh, to yeah. the effect is that you get to do this. And that, that effect seems uh, pretty meaningless in, in a situation. But I, I'm just saying that to to incur wrath of uh, people because I'm in that kind of mood. But uh, <laughs> uh, but I would like to express my vigorous agreement with you. And I think it's an actually uh, interesting way of looking at it um, uh, in the sense of viewing uh, a, a range of speech as an acceptable danger, almost viewing, I mean, it's not uh, without seeding the nonsense that speech is violence because it's not. Uh -huh. And that's a problem when and that needs to be uh, cut off and everything. But that uh, speech is uh, messy and upsetting and, and, and problematic. But the whole point of having a big hurly burly uh, society is that we recognize that you can't uh, in, in, a, in a security context, you can't just have metal detectors in every single building. It's uh, you can't over protect if you start uh, acting in this way um, it's going to end up making you less safe and just a, a less interest and that I think is a uh, a very interesting way of looking at it the other thing I would say a way of, of, of talking about this Jonathan Rauch uh, to my mind has written the best book about free speech in the last 25 years came out almost 25 years ago now 1993 or 94 called Kindly Inquisitors yeah. a book mm -hmm. that totally uh, one of the top five books of just like reorienting my uh, my brain and those are uh, Mass old friend Scott Ross, who uh, who tipped me to that uh, 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 a long time ago. 
he wrote a an, a new afterword for that. I think Cato came out in the 20th anniversary and let him write a new afterword. And we ran it uh, in uh, uh, the magazine that I used to edit. And uh, uh, it and he the new afterward or forward was all about Frank Kameny, who is a, a guy. And I'm going to mess up the story, but um, gay rights activist worked for the federal government. Um, and uh, it, I, I think in its uh, national security uh, uh, arena, he was dismissed uh, from the army uh, map service because he was gay. And thus began a super long period of time of him fighting uh, f- just for basic gay rights. And Frank Kameny was someone uh, who, as Rauch expertly pointed out, um, was always aware that he wouldn't be able to make his long fight in which he started off of being in the 1%, in the 2%, not in like the rich monocle Camille Foster wearing 1%, 2%, (laughs) but like he's overwhelmingly outgunned by all of good public opinion. Uh And it is for those people who an arena of free speech means the most to, because if you're able to go there and argue, that means to enough people, I can turn 1% into two, into four, into eight, and we can start moving this thing. But if I don't have the rights, that's not going to happen. And if there's going to be a constricted amount of free speech, and again, this uh, I share your frustration at this because it almost feels tautological to point this out. Yeah. But whenever you uh, create the acceptable zone of what can talk about, what can be talked about, the people who are going to define that acceptable zone and enforce it are the people with fucking power. Right. It's this, not hard to figure out. Yeah. This, it's the marginalized yeah. who are going to get screwed if we don't have that. It's the same thing with blasphemy law. The young have an excuse here for not knowing these things and not being, you know, aware enough or self-aware enough to realize that this stuff, that, you know, the baggage shifts over time. Um, <laughs> the people in the ACLU do have no excuse. The professors that are uh, crusading against speech have no excuse. And all of them come from generally one political direction. I don't see a lot of people on the, on the right arguing against this because I think they feel at this point that their their ideas are under attack and their speech rights are under attack. Yeah, they have so, different different categories of speech that they uh, yeah, that they, that they like, that like they, burning they, flags, for exactly, example, which, that, which they do in the Cato poll. It suggests exactly. that they think that is dangerous yes. and is likely to get soldiers and politicians killed. And yeah, yeah. Right. But I, I think I think that the, the 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 key point here is that is that when you when you think of these restrictions on speech, when you think of things that we talked about on the show many times, like fire in a crowded theater. Um, look at that Schenck case. And that is adjudicated in 1919. And the Oliver Wendell Holmes famous thing. We've talked about this many times. But I, I just pulled up the flyer that he was arrested for distributing. The headline in big, bold letters in the flyer is long live the Constitution of the United States. Wake up, America. Your liberties are in danger. And of course, he is uh, arrested for this. And uh, it is a Socialist Party uh, leaflet uh, that uh, I think most libertarians would uh, uh, quite appreciate uh, because it is against conscription because America was inching towards uh, involvement in the First World War. The United States got involved in 1917, three years basically after it started. And remember people, especially you, these, these young kids um, 
that consider themselves of, of the left is that, you know, this might be your time. The wind might be against your back right now, uh -huh. culturally and, and politically, um, you know, not in the sort of broader sense that Donald Trump is the president, but on campuses, for sure, they feel like they're insulated from all this stuff, is that you're lucky now that, that you know, people are terrified to offend your group. People are terrified that they might run afoul of some kind of, I hate using this expression, but some PC notion and, and be you know, chucked off of campus or shunned. And your views used to be the ones that were shunned. Yeah. The Schenck case is your views. These are the Socialist Party of the United States. When you, when it wasn't in your favor, don't always think it's going to be in your favor. That's when, you know, people can, you know, they abridge, abrogate people's rights because, you know, it's like, it's, it's like, you know, executive power. It's like, it's fine when Obama has it. Wasn't so good when Bush has it. Geez, you know, Trump comes in office and he's like got that pen going like crazy. It's running out of ink. That's the first thing. The second thing that I worry about with these people is they say, I understand when I talk to them about healthcare, right? I think they're wrong about a lot of it, but they have a general sense of what their comparison is. Why can't we be Norway? Well, for a lot of reasons. Why can't we be Sweden? Well, Sweden's having a hard time being Sweden in this in this sense too. But we need to be European and in in this and you know sort of single payer, etc. You hear this all the time. Fine, that's great. We can have a great conversation about this. When they talk about abridging speech rights, what is the example that they point to? Give me an example of some country in the world that has successfully done this or abridged rights and made things better for minorities, et cetera. Nobody noticed. I mentioned on the show a few weeks ago, a Nazi march in Berlin after Charlottesville. Um, two weeks after that, there was a very, very large one in Malmö in Sweden uh, that was marching, uh, I think, by a Jewish community center on, I can't remember what, it was a, it was a high holiday, all this stuff. And there were a lot of people there. And I think that even even in comparison to Charlottesville, it was kind of proportionally more people at this Swedish thing. Swedes, you cannot say what you want in Sweden. You will go, you'll be fined, you can go to jail, you can do yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. There are hate speech laws and they are very, there's a there's a category of, of offense in Sweden called Hetzmotfolkgruppe. It's like hate against a like a like a like an ethnicity or something, folk group. And so th this stuff in Germany, I made this argument on this podcast before, Germany has had very stringent laws against this. There's, there's Nazis, there's you know, 1991 at the fall of, of you know, the wall, there was this burning of, of asylum um, apartment buildings or murders. There was the NSU, the National Socialist Party, like, you know, militarist party in the 90s and, and 2000s. They were killing people. They're on trial now. Um, Front National in France. Um, not, I mean, we could go down a list in the UK, too. And by the way, it's not even in the direction because we think of races. It's in the other direction, too, of different types of races. In the UK, Hizbut Tahrir, these fanatical Islamist organizations that are anti-Semitic, they're homophobic, mm -hmm. they're misogynist in the true sense of the word. They operate within this country that has this superstructure of laws to punish people for fucking tweets. So kids, when you're rushing the stage, what is it that you want? And give me the example, because you're always giving me the examples about healthcare and about gun control. And the rest of it. Give me the speech example. What is the speech example? You don't have one. And then the people who really, really push it become totalitarian. You don't want to, you don't want to go to Venezuela. You don't want to talk about Cuba. Maybe they do want to talk about Cuba. You don't want to talk about Moscow and the Kremlin and how they handle speech. So what's the example? I don't know. 
No one ever says it. They just say, this is bad. And if we prevent these people from marching in Charlottesville, that person wouldn't have died that day. Probably true. But what does that solve? Say, well, you know, it saves this woman's life. There's no way that one can adjudicate speech and limit speech based on some prediction machine that a f- psychopath is going to run somebody down in a car. I, you just can't do it. I mean, it's a it's a hopeless exercise. So I, I ask them all and would love to ask them when they charge me one day. I kind of keep <laughs> keep myself out of these situations. But, <laughs> what, what, so tell, tell me you want this to happen, right? You want to tell me the example of it working. And we'll talk about whether that's appropriate for America, because, you know, sort of a regime of free speech in Romania is not the same as a regime of free speech in Burma or is it in America. So can we apply this here? Mm-hmm. If you were on stage at William and Mary or Rutgers or wherever the hell Camille's going on in his college. I wouldn't have this conversation. Naked. <laughs> That'd be shouted down. Uh, no, but if someone rushed the stage when you were when you were speaking. You would assault them physically. Oh, I would love it. <laughs> Holy cow. I would love it. I would be You would just go a thousand percent salvy. Yeah. I, yeah. I didn't. I didn't. Crazy Come up here. <laughs> What's your name? What's your, I know your brother. Guy's a fucking punk. Yeah, just go like that. On Rickles on I, him. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm going to drive this through glass. Yeah. Glass. Yeah. You know, you know, it's funny. Melba probably missed uh, missed an important <laughs> lesson about free speech because she was had her head in the in the toilet because she didn't listen to my glassy voice. So can I can I push back, uh, Melba, a little bit? And and Matt, I know you you wrote a piece about um about uh the the gun situation this week, which I, I would really? love to hear you um articulate a Not bit. Really. About. I wrote a piece about Vegas. But go on. Oh, well, good. Vegas and not the gun situation, but Vegas. Well, at this point, the tragedy in Vegas has become the gun situation. The conversation we are having now is about guns. And in general, when it comes to the reality of trying to advocate for public policy, um, I try to be rather practical about things. Like I will push things as far as I think um, I can. I will accept sort of compromises because public opinion is only interested in so much. Uh, while I'm a, a free speech absolutist, I, I know that there are limitations on speech in this country um, that are pretty narrow, but I expect with guns, for example, that there will be some limitations and restrictions placed there as well. I don't know where the appropriate boundary point is supposed to be, um, but I do know that for me, and I'm, I'm reminded a little bit about the 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 unsafe space event that we had at Rutgers because Mark uh, Lillo was one of the folks, uh, Columbia professor um, who uh, wrote a book, The Once and Future Liberal, um, was also on the panel, as was uh, Sarah Heider, who I had not met before and was not familiar with her work, but she really great and eloquent um, and super brave um, uh, ex-Muslim who talks about um, issues with uh, with Islam. Um, but Mark Lilla and I were talking um, and Brian sat, I believe it's Satskavich. Um, and I just want to mention him as well because he was also really good. The entire panel was quite good. Um, and the, the folks at Spike did a great job pulling this event together. I really appreciated being a part of the conversation. And while I said I was disheartened, um, it, I feel like going to these places and having these conversations is important because 
someone has to provide the counterpoint. Um, and I do really feel like there were some moments there where we might have made some some meaningful progress, but I, I keep derailing myself. Yeah. Uh, by the way, <laughs> I should point out for, for, for those that, uh, those of us who didn't go to the event that was in New Jersey, um, Spiked uh, did tweet a uh, video link of it. Yes. Uh, so you can watch uh, Camille and the other his other four panelists uh, talking about this. Spiked also, just to derail it further since you can't get out of your own tangent, uh, Spiked <laughs> was or, born out of Living Marxism magazine. Uh, <laughs> LM, yeah. Uh, they also organized an event, I think, at American, American University yeah. in Washington, D.C., featuring was Nadine canceled. Strawson, former executive director of the ACLU, mm -hmm. uh, which is li li a liberties organization, from what I understand. Uh, Elizabeth Nolan Brown uh, from Reason Magazine and uh, some other people. And at the last minute, uh, it was uh, sort of canceled, derailed, and we had to hold up the Reason office instead. Uh, and it was a... a, a student feminist organization um, that uh, basically claimed a scout. They're like, yeah, we got this hate speech off of campus. Yeah. It's like, you just banned Nadine Strawson. <laughs> the former president of the ACLU. Of the yeah. former president of the ACLU yeah. and Elizabeth Nolan Brown as hate speech. Yeah. Nadine, Nadine, by the way, descended from Holocaust survivors. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. just ridiculous. But yeah. I, I was mentioning I mentioned all of this and I'm talking about guns. Mark Lilla um, and I, we actually shared a cab back to Brooklyn from Rutgers. Um, and did I think I could sack. No, he didn't um, suit too bad for me. Um, but he did say that I was paranoid um, and he, he, he was being cordial. We were having a great conversation. I really, really enjoyed his company. We had dinner and we talked uh, quite a bit. He's a brilliant guy. Um, really, really sharp. Yeah. Um, I, I enjoyed his company. He, we talked about um, all of my, my favorite um, books, which he'd all, he'd read all of them and knew the work, the material intimately it was great. Um, but he, he jokingly said, you're really paranoid. You just don't trust the government at all. Um, and I said, well, uh, sure, I'll, I'll accept paranoid. I will accept that there is a, a relatively low probability of a tyrannical government taking over the United States and persecuting me and completely spying on me and enslaving me and carrying out some sort of um, Hitler-esque genocide here in the United States. Um, maybe I'm, I'm a little insane. Um, that being said, it's not like it's unprecedented to have sort of thing happen. It's not like it's unprecedented to have it to be a part of an unpopular movement that wants to obtain some objective and having firearms, even really dangerous firearms can actually be an enormously useful tool in protecting yourself and your group. And that is a thing that has happened in this country with civil rights advocates. The Black Panthers? Um, it, the right. Black Panthers, um, who would apparently not be covered by the, they would not be supported by the ACLU. They were regarded as a hate group by some folks. Um, they also had firearms, and apparently the ACLU, by the new standard, might not uh, defend them in court. The NRA is, certainly didn't. Which is worth The NRA certainly didn't, yeah. Well, yeah. there's all sorts of qualifications then. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I... There was a piece I think, today. I think it's worth it's worth acknowledging. Absolutely, that that's and I want to one wanna... one radical position that one might hold, and I do yeah, in fact hold. I mean, uh, Brett Stevens, uh, the latest uh, token conservative at the New York Times, and I say that uh, almost jokingly. He's a, a, a fine writer for a neocon, Moynihan. <laughs> um, but jeez, uh, you know. Uh, but uh, he had a piece today <laughs> saying like it's time to repeal the Second Amendment, and he went after the uh, the notion of that. 
that uh, the kind of uh, exp- uh, the similar to what you expressed, that some gun owners or some uh, Second Amendment uh, rights uh, kind of enthusiasts invoke the this is the last bulwark against tyranny kind of thing, which sounds insane to like 80 to 90 percent of the country or 40 to 60. But who knows? Mm-hmm. It sounds for the people who don't get that. It sounds insane. Like there's not a gray area on that question. Like you think we need guns so that to protect ourselves against like the tyrannical government. That sounds a little bit sounds a little bit weird. I remember uh, going to um, the great first and second amendment lawyer, uh, Eugene Volok of uh, the Volok conspiracy in Washington, DC. Great guy, friend. Um, he used to do this great thing where he would pull, uh, uh, especially younger journalists, opinion journalists, and he would take them on, uh, take them out shooting. So I, I'd gone shooting when I was younger, back when I would do, go kill things. But uh, but like as an adult, I, I don't like guns. And he thought it was a very useful thing to take you and, and give you a full like gun safety lesson and a gun history lesson and a Second Amendment lesson. And then you go to the, the range and like shoot Osama bin Laden. It was pretty great. Mm-hmm. Like Brian Doherty, like, uh, uh, how does this work? Um, <laughs> great. Uh, but uh, Eugene, whose mom uh, uh, was like the founder of I forget the name of the uh, the the movie magazine from the nineties, but it was like you know, Empire. Empire was it Empire? I think it was Empire. Uh, it's it something like that. It was a one word uh, title. So and, or premiere. And, maybe it was premiere. I think yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, premiere. Empire is a British one. Sorry. Yeah. And uh, and Eugene himself had like started some pat- patent when he was twelve that made the family a lot of money. So basically, he lived the absolute top of Beverly Hills at that point. And I think now he's up in the Palisades and uh, and. I'm like, all right, dude, you live on top. And I don't think that I'm talking out of tune for you. Eugene, I know you're listening closely. Uh, and I think that you would uh, recognize that uh, I'm not uh, revealing too much. Um, I'm like, dude, you live on the top of Beverly Hills. Why do you got to have all the big guns? Uh, and he gave me the answer of like, well, you know, um, you know, the riots happened here, you know, 15 uh-huh. years ago. And I want to and if the, if civil society breaks down, I want to be able to have my defense. And for me, that sounded a little bit crazy, uh, because if I lived on the top of the hill, I would know, as our late friend Kathy Sype uh, once said in a very cruel and probably um Questionable t- taste uh, thing. Uh, riders like water uh, never, <laughs> never roll uphill. <laughs> mm. Oh gosh, which is <laughs> just, just a terrible, but really funny thing to say. Uh, all of that said, so uh, Damon Root uh, at, over at, at Reason, a great constitutional scholar and someone who appreciates the history of civil rights in this country very much, he responded that the civil rights movement was swollen with guns. Uh-huh. Rosa Parks had a gun under her pillow. Mm. Uh, there a TRM. Howard slept with his gun like a big heavy gun. Martin Luther King applied for a gun permit. Like it was part of, uh, Fre- of I think Frederick Douglass said, you know, that there are great uh, different uh, rights that are very important, but one of the best rights is to have a very well functioning revolver. Uh, it has always been part of it. So there have been times of tyranny uh, in this country where very much that was an important uh, right to have, even if it sounds crazy to me that Eugene Ball used to worry. Was, yeah, was that, was that King? Gun permit denied? Do I remember that correctly? I believe it was denied. Yes. Uh, yeah. I avoid gun debates um, like the plague for because I, I've never there's never been a gun debate precipitated by a mass shooting or a mass tragedy of some sort mm-hmm. uh, that has 
produced some sort of new and interesting thinking that I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting, actually. It's the same thing cycled back and forth. And I just find what I found after this one is like I, you know, this kind of bump stock stuff. I just I, I, I'm not going to lose a minute of sleep if these things um, are regulated and banned. I mean, the NRA has apparently this evening urged that they are um, uh, more heavily regulated, I think was actually the, the phrase that they mm-hmm. used. But, um, you know, when the NRA is uh, bailing on it, you know, it's not going to go well for these people. But it, 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 what I find so frustrating about it is not the actual uh, debate itself, which I read one book by a liberal guy, used to write for the New York Times, I can't remember his name, it was a book was called Living with Guns, um, talking about how do, we, how do we live with guns, because there are 350 million of them in the United States, so they're not, they're not going anywhere, right. so we have to figure out how to live with them, and, and, and I thought that was a pretty interesting, it was the last sort of interesting thing that, that I read on it, but one of the, the, the depressing things is the kind of moral preening that in, you know, I don't, I don't think that in the time of a tragedy that one should not politicize things. I think it's totally fine to do so. I, I find the argument kind of annoying. Um, and, you know, I give Kennedy a hard time. I think she got beaten up for, for saying something like that. Um, you know, like, don't politicize this now. Yeah, well, of course you should politicize it now. That's it's a political thing. But, but uh, you know, I, I, the thing that frustrates me most about it is, is just the kind of poverty of the debate about it is that Twitter is just packed with people saying the exact same things every time. Yeah. You have, you know, the, 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 the semi, like, I mean, just, I can't even, <laughs> I don't even know what to, to, to say about Dean Obadala, who is the great triumph of the mediocre of somebody who's so he's unbelievably the, stupid. He's the, oh my God. He, God. He's the Dean of comedy. He's the Dean of comedy, oh, which uh, apparently self-appointed, uh, like the guy, <laughs> in the local town who says he's the viceroy of the region. He just decided that he was the dean of comedy because in his kingdom, one doesn't need to be funny to be the dean of comedy. He's never said a thing that was funny. And he's like, you know, why, uh, oh, white, white guy, you know, do this whole, you know, not calling him a terrorist. And this is, you know, apparently you said Glenn Greenwald says this. This is the first step in the, the debate. Always the same. The first step is, well, you're not calling this guy a terrorist. Yeah. Well, and the reason we don't actually is because words have meanings and that's not what the word terrorist means and terrorism would require a political motivation it's not a complicated concept if you want to politicize it more and say oh you know this is like these these 60 60 year old you know disaffected white guys are are actually the problem it's like okay fine then have that debate but don't don't let's not kind of do this same thing over and over this kabuki dance that we do about is, so annoying and the thing is it's completely reversed when it's a Muslim, right? Well, that's the thing. That yeah. Right after the uh, uh, the so, San Bernardino shooting, mm-hmm. um, so cops in a moment of of, uh, of of a mass shooting that obviously kind of looks like it's terrorism, and it will eventually be probably classified as terrorism, are reluctant to use the word terrorism. Um, it's frustrating to people on the right when it's a Muslim, and it's frustrating to people on the left when it's a white guy. They've had 16 years of practice now. The LL fucking shooting in 2002 when completely you know, forgotten about when Moynihan, at LAX Moynihan was like ready to go to war in 2002 that's how crazy we all were 
<laughs> back then. <laughs> hey, shoulder hurts. Uh, but no, I mean, like we were all, invading Vermont. Maybe <laughs> we were on edge then. And bro uh, from Egypt, who was had been arrested in Egypt on uh, a tie by having uh, suspected ties to an Islamist terrorist group, um, lives in like Irvine or some damn place, um, and. Uh, is known uh, locally because he was really pissed off at his neighbor uh, for flying an American flag on September 11th. And so put a bumper sticker on his door saying, read the Quran," and then like put some guns and some knives in his trunk of his car, drove to LAX. It's like, I need to see one airline. Uh, El Al is the one. Yeah. I, there's a lot of airlines in LAX. A lot of airlines. I think I'm going to go to El Al uh, on July 4th. Yeah. Um, the first July 4th after 9-11. And I'm just going to... This guy to- did symbolism with a very heavy hand, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> and I'm going to go like shoot some people. Uh, and he killed like two, uh, wounded some others. Um, and what did the... Uh, what was the reaction from... L.A. Mayor James Hahn, uh, Gray Davis, then California governor, Ari Fleischer. Uh, all the stuff that I just mentioned was totally known within 24 hours that he had got, he had been in this uh, watch list. He had said these things. He'd done these things. Um, and he uh, kind of obviously targeted this. Ari Fleischer said we have no reason to suspect this is an act of terrorism at this time. Ari Fleischer, mm-hmm. nine months. Ari Fleischer is the guy that's like, you know, we got to watch what we do and we say. It was like 2002 was a weird time, man. It was really weird. Camille was 10 and he was, really, <laughs> and he was ready to go to war yeah. with himself. Or with his church, or whatever. Yeah, don't 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 <laughs> jump to conclusions about these sorts of events they, until we should jump to conclusions. And, and, the, <laughs> yeah. and the reason why until pe- it fits your political worldview. The reason why people are and I wrote a really like angry uh, column uh, for the LA Daily News at the time. I'm like, it's obviously fucking terrorism. What's wrong with you? Ah! Yeah, yeah. Um, and but, but that was because it was kind of the first time. And we've had again 15, 16 years of this. This is what they do almost every time. I'm sure there's some cases where they don't. Um, uh, th- there was a split, uh, a, a circuit split in New York after the Chelsea bombing I forget like a year uh, two years ago whenever that yeah. was mm-hmm. um, uh, where guys like, in court now actually where like de Blasio was like uh, we don't know if it's terrorism and and uh, and uh, Governor Cuomo was like I you know I hate de Blasio so it is terrorism or vice versa I forget what yeah. it was but um, so you understand why this happens local law enforcement at the time is completing an investigation trying to smoke out the motive they probably still have some people they haven't uh, it, uh, uh, interviewed yet and they're trying to reassure the public that there isn't another organization tied with this that's about to blow somebody up. Right. That's what they're doing. Yeah. They're not using the dictionary d- definition of the word terrorism. And eventually later, the LL thing was classified by DOJ and FBI as terrorism because it was obviously fucking terrorism. But in the moment, that's what local law enforcement does. That's what they did in Vegas. And immediately, everyone just jumps up and says, oh, that's white supremacist. It's it's the ultimate act in white supremacy that he wasn't called terrorist. Uh, but we don't even know his motive. But even now, we don't. Like three we don't. Days no. later, and it's, we saw it with the Jared Loeffner thing, too. But it's there are about five kind of rote things that um, it's when you realize that the people servicing us uh, as, you know, the reading population, the journalists that do so <laughs> are incredibly dimwitted and hue to cliche as much as possible. Because, you know, what's the you know first thing you see? Oh, you're not going to call it terrorism. I'm like, well, let's just relax. Let's hold on a second. Can we just hold on for a second? No, not going to hold on for a second. No? OK, fine. What's your next tweet? Uh, uh, I don't want to save your prayers. That's no the big one. No prayer. more thoughts and prayers.
prayers. All right. Everybody just wants to, to be, tell people nice. how they're supposed to. Act. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you should get on legislation. Like, okay, you're making a political point. The guy, you know, somebody said thoughts and prayers. You're allowed to say thoughts and prayers if you have a particular political view. If you voted a particular way, you're not allowed to say thoughts and prayers. In other words, and uh, I think Barack Obama said thoughts and prayers. Yeah, it's just it's just, it's just it's different. It's different if you've advocated for gun rights. If you've done that, then you can't be the sort of person that says thoughts and prayers because you're unwilling to do the thing that would obviously have prevented this particular act from happening. This yeah, wouldn't I mean, have happened if you would support gun rights. Yeah, and I mean, um, it's it's. And I, I mean, I don't. Again, I, this is not an issue that I have any have any fire for at all. I just I find it frustrating in almost every way. But there are these series of journalistic cliches that you're you're supposed to go through. And that's the first two ones are there is terrorism and the one about thoughts and prayers. And so much so that it was I was a cover of the New York Daily News um, after whatever the last one was. But look, I mean, I don't think let's put it this way. You want to anger fifth column listeners? Let me do that right now. I'm going to try to anger you guys. I'm going to I'm going to get you. you. I'm going to get you. Yeah. And you're sucking sand. Yeah. Watch the dirty work thing. It's very funny. Um, but. But look, I don't I think there is something to this, you know, question that nobody is, you know, the the sort of NRA types have not given me a sufficient and acceptable and interesting answer to that. um, Why these things don't happen in other countries as much as they do in the United States. I mean, I think that's a perfectly reasonable question. If you are a scientist and you are trying to localize a problem and you're if it's a disease, whatever it might be, and it keeps clustering in one area, you start trying to figure out what it is about that area that it's clustering in. And I don't think that's unreasonable. That reminds me of like the last interesting Michael Moore movie was Bowling for Columbine, uh, because that he actually is going after that question of why does it happen here, not Canada? And he spends some time like going across yeah. uh, uh, from Detroit into whatever Canada stand has across from Detroit um, and uh, uh, Windsor. Uh, yeah. And. Uh, and th- there's as many guns up there, um, and it's uh, it's in many senses more part of the culture mm-hmm. uh, here. And and Michael Moore himself has a at that time at least he was a card carrying member of the NRA. He came from a gun culture, and it was sort of it was I was a bit of a it was a bit of a thing. bit yeah, for sure. A a, but there yeah. he had some sense of intellectual exploration or empathy and he didn't have an answer at the end of the movie which i thought was kind of great uh-huh. because he has answers in his other movies like yeah let's have the cuban healthcare system not not a very particularly good answer um but there there was a sense of that and that that's actually asking the right question i think it is actually, why why yeah, here is it i think so and i, I think i think his uh, answer that, now that i'm remembering it is the barry sheck guy the one who's like we're scaring ourselves to death oh yeah which yeah, I, yeah which yeah, I, don't, yeah, I don't find yeah. persuasive hey, matt if i may jump in yeah, he, he also suggested that it was our war culture, that it was the fact that Lockheed Martin had it was in Colorado. A, exactly. Yeah. That, that, that we yeah. make weapons of war and yeah. we are a war culture, which is yeah. why, which is why Matt Stone and Trey Parker blew him up in, uh, <laughs> in their, in their puppet movie, uh, to America, because they're in that movie, remember? And they, they, they thought that they were very unfairly well, treated, well, not, but just, that if, uh, not just uh, in the movie though. He, he also like borrowed the style of animation yes, from the right. series that's and right. used it in the movie. Yeah. Which they were very, um, which they, about. they didn't like that. Yeah. I mean, it's you know it, I used to say this all the time when I lived in Sweden was that if you uh, there's a cultural thing about it right and and how do you deal with that is you know above my pay grade but if you I used to say this all the time if you took a crate an enormous wooden crate of Glocks 
right? You loaded magazines into every one of them, put one in the chamber, took the safeties off, and put them in the center of Stockholm, maybe 200 of them in the center of Stockholm. Uh, by the morning, the following morning, probably 199 would be at police stations. Mm-hmm. If you put them in the center of New York City, I don't think it'd have the same ratio, right? I mean, there's something about Swedes. There's something about, you know, um, the Swiss. I mean, there's something about, just culturally is very different. Um, the Japanese, I suggest, would probably, I suspect, would probably be the same thing. But there is something particular about about American Scots culture. I don't, would, I don't know what it is. The Scots would wanna... turn them in for knives and search. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> give that fucking knife for it. That's yeah. great. It's a loaded gun, right, you bastard? And the next thing you know, he's drunk and he stabs you in the face. And then Bigby shows up. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's funny. I've actually been reading um, recently <laughs> and, and rereading uh, a couple of different books, um, but I started rereading uh, Steven Pinker's um, book uh, last weekend, Better Angels of Our Nature, about um, decline of violence. violence. Um, And because I'm a bit of a a lunatic, apparently, and I just have a difficult time focusing on on any one thing, hence all of the tangents, perhaps. Maybe it's all related. That makes good radio. Do you think that's yeah, what it is? Yeah, it's good radio. Can anyone a lot of keep up? I don't know if they can yeah, keep up. Yeah, of course they do. They listen. I, get a lot of, I mean, a lot we of can't, but yeah. like, yeah. Uh, it's, you know, well, it's, I'm, it's why I'm, I'm drinking through this. <laughs> what the hell is he going to say next? Well, I'm reading Better Angel of, uh, of Our Nature along with The Rise and Fall of Violent Crime in America, which is an interesting book to be reading, um, given that we have actually seen uh, violent crime rates in this country sure. go up over the last two years, which is something that has surprised me. I was skeptical um, of it when we first saw it, and I don't know that it will continue. Is it not flat well what we've seen is it's property crimes that are um have fallen but violent crimes rates of violent crime like have in fact increased um and and some of this is because of the way that we actually do the collection of data around um things like crime uh nationally and police shootings of course which we talked about at length here um but it's all voluntary but the thing is that it really does seem to be quite difficult to tease out the sort of causal factors um, and the fact that we've actually saw like a global decline in crime rates coming out of the coming in the mid 1990s. After um, a global totally every single culture had this in the industrialized West uh-huh. rise after World War Two. Yeah. It all went up and then it all went down. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So weird. it's it's complicated. And I'm and I'm fine having complicated questions. Um, I'm I'm fine talking about things in the heat of the moment. Um, I, I want us to have productive and useful conversations, not hysterical, ridiculous conversations. I'm not sure if we're better or worse at having productive conversations in the immediate aftermath of bad things happening. Um, I don't know that we we have better, more useful conversations. Any we do here actually. in this room. We in do. this room, we have in this good, room, we, yeah. we do a very good job yeah. um, most of the time on most things. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if we should talk about um, sort of secession season. The the fact that there are a, a couple of of peoples. Uh, around the world who find themselves struggling against regimes and yearning to be independent. Um, I'm talking specifically about uh, Catalonia and Kurdistan. Yes. Um, Although there are some other some other places around the globe where there have also been state um, of Jefferson. Some. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. State of Jefferson is one. Various other um, places on the West and East Coast who have perhaps made some some noises, some rumbling about potentially leaving the United States. But the situation in Catalonia um, really is coming to a boil. And I mean, this is Thursday night. I, I don't know what's happening now. The The last um, reports I saw were that the Spanish government was, in fact, um, suspending the legislature in Catalonia, that there were still rumblings about them potentially cl- declaring independence um, as soon as right this moment. 
and I believe it was Sunday, October 1st, when yeah. they had the the referendum declared unconstitutional by the Spanish courts. Um, and the question was, do you want Catalonia to become an independent state in the form of a republic? 92% for independence with 42% turnout. 42% turnout is important uh, because it's rather low. I suspect it was also pretty low because the people who were turning out, the people who were in the streets, the people who were protesting, were getting the shit beat out of them <laughs> by law enforcement Unbelievable. Um, and military units who were dressed in black. And, you know, I am I am only so familiar with the situation in Catalonia, so I won't go into any sort of detail in terms of my own perspectives on the unique circumstances of Spain. But I am uh, the sort of person that is, in fact, pretty well calibrated towards um, if uh, if you love her, you got to let her go. And <laughs> my heart is generally with people that are, are interested in liberating themselves from regimes they don't like. Um, so with, you know, 900 odd people who were injured um, after clashes with the police in a lot of the images that I was seeing online, I mean, it's folks who have their hands in the air while they're being like punched, kicked. I saw one police officer jump kick off some stairs, uh, someone who looked like a grandfather. It's really heinous stuff. But the response from around the world has been has been interesting. I mean, we talked actually a little bit on the program about Donald Trump um, actually telling the Catalonian people to chill out uh, and stay with Spain. This is good. You guys want to just be a part of Spain. Uh, they, they apparently don't agree, at least the 42 percent of people that turned out. Um, I have to imagine that sentiments are even more strongly in that direction now. Um, so maybe we talk a little bit about this and then I definitely want to talk about Kurdistan as well, um, which yeah. have just a non-binding yeah. Yeah. referendum. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they've claimed much higher levels of turnout, um, a little bit softer level of support. I believe that was around like um, 93% for independence, 72% turnout is what they claimed. Um but that was a non-binding resolution. And while there have not been any sort of there's been no violence yet, um, Iraq and Turkey uh, have both made it very clear that they're unhappy. Turkey threatening to close borders, which are essential trading routes for um, the Kurdish peoples um, and Iraq. Um, inflicting some financial sanctions on them, uh, as well as demanding that they hand over the two international airports that are there in the region. Two very dicey situations, two very different situations for the United States to respond to. In one case, Kurdistan, I mean, the United States has been arming the Peshmerga. So you have a situation mm -hmm. where the United States might find um, the Iraqi government and the Turk and Turkey to U.S. allies at war with uh, Kurdistan, a government that has well, the Turks have been, have been at war with altogether. the Kurds for a long time. Yeah, yeah this is yeah. true. Yeah. Um, but, but the Kurds are altogether dependent on the United States in terms of their military equipment. Um, this is, I mean, two really dicey situations. So I've been talking a bit, but I would love for you guys to weigh in and, and perhaps illuminate. Things uh, yeah, well, I have bit. two different opinions on both of these. I mean, the Catalonia thing is a, is is a farce. It's a complete. It's a tragedy for Spanish democracy. I mean, this um, has been portrayed in the media thanks to the aggressive uh, Spanish police and the way that the kind of civil guards there actually handled. You this, can't imagine is, a stupider way to it's respond. It's absolutely to this. absurd, and um, I think they probably there's been. I don't think it was as bad as people thought it was. It was localized in some places, that was, but it was bad. It was bad. It was not good stuff. And these are not the images that you want. It looks like the 1968 Democratic Convention. Of people being hit with truncheons and the rest of it. But 
th- that has overshadowed the fact that this independence referen- referendum was a complete sham. I mean, this is something you would see, you know, in the People's Republic of Donetsk. Hmm. I mean, the the turnout was low. The ratification of the post-Franco constitution in Spain, which happened in 1978, was done with 90% support in Catalonia. It is illegal uh, what they're doing it is illegal uh, under Spanish law. You cannot decide to create law that is not Spanish law, which is why the court today uh, knocked, knocked all of this stuff down. They've knocked it down before. They've said that the referendum was legal. It was a very, very low turnout, whereas, you know, in Catalonia, in the in the in the local parliament, it you you need two thirds to get the most basic things. Two thirds. vote. it was a 50, simple 50 percent majority, you mm-hmm. know, regardless of turnout that that would grant independence. And this is, of course, constructed by the pro-independence, you know, kind of UKIP of Catalonia crowd. And more, more importantly, is that it wasn't a real election. Uh, you could, you didn't have to be in the voter vote anywhere. You yeah. could vote anywhere. You could print out your ballot at home. I mean, this is under no sort of international standards. Does this seem like a fair, a fair election? And so, even on those, on those merits, you have people saying, you know, kind of braying about the police response. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. But don't let that obscure the fact that this is a, this is a, a part part of Spain, which decided it wanted to be its own country. And the people who are not going to vote for independence are not going out to vote. They just aren't. That's why you have a 90 percent. You look at the polls and the difference between the polls and the actual results, which is 90 percent to like 40 odd percent. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a, a a setup. And, you know, the Spanish uh, uh, police and the Spanish government, the central government, like ripping those ballot boxes out. I mean, good God. What? I mean, you know, let's do the cliche. It's bad optics. Don't do it, man. Mm-hmm. The, you can debate these people on these points and make them look silly. But, you know, the European Union doesn't want this. I mean, are they going to nibble into the Catalan parts of, uh, of France? I mean, this opens up the gates of hell for independence movements of small breakaway independence movements that, that, that are, you know, they're going to screw up every country across Europe. And this is not something that the European Union is looking forward to. Uh-huh. And, of course, Catalonia, is, that's a Brexit on a small scale, too. That's not these are not people that are going to be part of the European Union. The European is not going to welcome them. You're just going to have this big thing plopped in the middle of Spain that's going to cause all these difficulties. It's bad for Spain. It's, you know, undemocratic in almost every way. The police response was was horrifying. But, you know, look, this is this was done poorly on everyone's side here. Um, well, actually, I would say that the, 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 the Catalan separatists was done, done brilliantly because it was a PR. It was a PR victory for them. Nobody no, got for, killed. For no fault of their own uh, in some respects. I suspect they knew that this was coming. I mean, this was there was a Francoist response to this. The Spanish police are not known for for being kid gloves about about these things, whether it's a G20 or whatever kind of uh, big financial meeting and the Spanish Marxists are on the street. And mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is rough stuff. I mean, this happens in America and you have nine Ken Burns documentaries the next year about impending fascism. <laughs> this every, everyone's like, well, I wish we could be more like Europe. It's like, imagine if this happens this in America. Imagine yeah. if the women's march descended into people being hit with rubber hoses and trenches. It wouldn't happen. It happens where in, in, you know, 2000, there was a kid, I think his name was Giuliani. Actually, his kid was, was shot in the head and killed during an anti WTO march in Italy. I mean, this, this, this violence like this, it consumes Europe pretty consistently. That was a very, very special one though. It didn't, didn't, didn't expect that. As far as Kurdistan is concerned, I mean, it's also to, to talk about destabilization, it would be, it'd be terrible, but, but 
one has to kind of intellectually side with the Kurds here. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, just, I mean, the, 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 the people of Catalonia are not under the boot heel of X, Y, or Z. You know, I mean, they, they didn't, there was not a gas attack at Halabja, Cal- Catalonia, <laughs> where people were frozen as dead bodies in the street yeah. with, you know, a, you know, America kind of turning the other way too, by the way, you know, when we were supporting the Iraqis because we hated the Iranians so much. Um, yeah, I mean, if you look at the Kurds and the the hell that they have had to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, with respect to Iraq. With respect to is, Iraq, particularly, well, uh, with respect to Turkey, too. I mean, mm-hmm. the Turks have been incredibly brutal to Kurds. It's but not, it's, fun, it's it's not Iraq, to be Kurd in Iran but Kurd, either. Too. Kurdistan is a part of Iraq It is effectively, now, so yeah, it's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Them. I mean, but this is when the people... US created a... Uh, uh, quasi-independent state. Yeah, an autonomous sure. region, you know, like, um, you know, it's a tough situation. I mean, you don't, I mean, you're going to, you need Baghdad to not be very annoyed if you're supporting Kurdish independence. You need Turkey, despite the fact that the fallout between the West and Turkey has gotten to a point, you know, Fatallah Gulan is like in a camp in, in Pennsylvania and they're like, hey, you know, he was responsible for the coup. Can you send him back? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of bad blood and, you know, you know, uh, uh, Erdogan's people beating everybody up everywhere they they go. Um, so there's no really pleasing the America-Turkey relationship, which is so damaged now. And because the Kamalist attitude of Turkey, where it's a secular attitude of Turkey, is gone. I mean, it's absolutely gone. And 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 it, it is effectively a mildly Islamist government. I'd say mildly because it's not, it's not, you know, Saudi Arabia. People are being beheaded in the streets and you can still drink in Istanbul and stuff. But I mean, this is not something that is something that the American government is going to want to come out or any governments, Western governments, are going to come out and support, despite the fact that we we use the Kurds as our punchline when we don't know what to say about the Middle East in presidential debates. Well, we're just going to we'll arm the Kurds. How many fucking Kurds do you think there are? Yeah. It's like uh, you can, arm the Kurds is always a solution. And they are our cannon fodder. They are our shining example of democracy in Iraq because, you know, when I, so many people say I've been to Iraq. Um, I haven't, um, but I, but people tell me like I've been to Iraq and then you realize that they've been to Kurdistan, which is like, you know, um, you know, Erbil is a, is a, is a pretty bucolic place compared to, you know, going to Mosul or something. So, I mean, it's, they've done pretty well for themselves and they, they, they deserve some sort of credit for in a region, which is absolutely chaotic in almost every sense, every place that they, this is an Island of Kurdish tranquility there comparatively, Hmm. comparatively, right? The thing that surprises me about Catalan in the context of Europe, there were a lot of separatist movement, Basque separatist terrorists in the Mm eighties. Yeah. ETA was a big, yeah. In Spain and France at the time. And I think to the surprise of a lot of people, the advent, the strengthening, uh, the, the deepening and the broadening of the European Union, that took, absorbed a lot of the energy, a lot of the kind of, um, I mean, the, what did they call it, the, the Europe, European Union of Regions, where they emphasized local flavors within countries, saying you're part of the European overall construct and we appreciate your regional differences and things like that. And a lot of that sentiment got tamped down to an extraordinary degree uh, in especially uh, Western Europe. Meanwhile, in Eastern Europe, 
You know, you had the creation of what, a dozen countries that didn't quite exist before yep. on the periphery of Russia. Sure. Uh, Czechoslovakia broke into. Um, I was uh, uh, remembering uh, just last night a conversation with an old friend of mine um, catching up on stuff. And I was uh, reminiscing about November 17th, 1990, which is the one year anniversary of the Velvet Revolution. And I happened to be in Prague and uh, George H.W. Bush, who was the president of the United States back then, um, gave a speech in Wenceslas Square. And and uh, and uh, it did lasting impression on me uh, because what he was talking about, he was encouraging the Czechs and Slovaks to stay together forever because it's really bad if you split up. You know, it's funny that you said you said um, November 17th, um, which if you're thinking of Czechoslovakia, it means one thing. But if you're talking about the chaos of Europe and people always, you know, deify Europe as this place, uh, you think of the November 17th movement in Greece. I mean, this forgotten about by most people. There was a terrorist organization that disbanded not too long ago uh, that assassinated 25 people. People, including the British ambassador uh, in Athens. I mean, November 17 would kidnap and murder people, and they were an urban uh, urban guerrilla group. And you said, uh, Ed, we were talking about Etta, too. I had to look this up because um, people don't realize that Spain, which is a place where Norwegians go to retire and Germans go to sit on the beach, that was a fascist dictatorship. Until 1976. Uh, yeah, until 1976. And Etta was... Uh, fully operational terror organization, and I was, I couldn't remember, it was a high number, and I looked, that assassinated uh, 829 people. That's a lot of wow. people. That's a lot of people. Wow. Uh, and uh, injured uh, 2,000 plus more. There's actually a documentary, a Spanish documentary, it's not good, but it'll give you, it's, it'll give you a sense on Netflix about ETA, uh, because there's, ETA has a Cuban element to it, where people have this kind of romantic sympathy for them, but they were really, really repulsive uh, terrorists and 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 you know it was it went beyond just the Basque separatism thing. There's a sort of political element, a sort of broader political element of it too. But it's funny that if you watch Whit Stillman's brilliant classic movie from 1992, I think 92 or 93 called Barcelona. Um, I, I'll tell you a funny story about having drinks with someone one time because I love that movie so much. And he, had, he we emailed because he had read something of mine. And he is like, he used to actually work for the American Spectator, by the way, in the 70s. Yeah. Nobody remembers this. But Stillman has a great movie called Barcelona in which the whole thing pivots on anti-American terrorism in Spain. And I watched the movie before I moved to England. It must have been 94. So it was 94. So I went to England, and before the night before I left, I went to a theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the Brattle Theater. I think it was Brattle Theater, and watched Barcelona. And it was about being hated as an American in Europe. And it it hinges on a series of terror attacks. And people forget this about Spain. They're like, oh, my God, they're, they're hitting people with truncheons. Terrible stuff. I'm, I'm going to keep saying it. Terrible stuff. But Spain is like, has been gripped by terrorism, as Europe has. You know, it's shifted to a different type of terrorism now. And you have, you know, people traveling to ISIS country and Islamist cells and the rest of it. But the 70s and 80s in Europe, particularly in Spain, was a really, really ugly time. A really, really ugly time. We think about the fractious nature of our politics and, you know, race and, you know, identity and all this stuff is that, you know, in Spain— where you go on holiday to uh, San Sebastian or something, or my friends are right now. I was supposed to join them today, but I didn't. <laughs> Dude, you're too old for San Sebastian. I, I uh, Trust me. These guys are total scumbags. Um, and uh, 
you're going on holiday to places like this and you realize that like, you know, oh, America is like, a, you know, it's like when Ta-Nehisi Coates goes to Paris and he's like, oh, it's so amazing here. It's not like America. It's like, are you <laughs> fucking kidding me? How dumb can you be? It's I just like, want to These flat. are really, really really fractious countries yeah. with 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 you know ethnic problems he does he does eventually acknowledge that they've they've got different niggers here that's what he says yeah he does he does eventually acknowledge that i, I spent some time with him today actually did See, you talk to him no we didn't talk <laughs> Who got scared? Let's pivot. Let's pivot. Tell us about Who this. Who got Tell scared? Tell us about this. No, no, no. I didn't get scared. He's, he's at a all. tall man. I understand. I didn't get scared at all. I, I went, know that. I mean, it's, it, it's this is not what happened. When a I man's went, got seven inches on you, <sighs> it, it's. I know. He's I mean, like physically unimpressive though. This guy. Yeah. Like, I mean, seriously. Camille's like ripped. No, come on. Now. Nah, he's good, but he's got his reach. Come on. I'm actually flexing right now. I can't even help it. I can't help it. No, no. So I went. I don't know who that is. <laughs> Mr. T's character in Rocky. Rocky really? Yeah. That was Clever his name? Lang. Clever huh. Lang. Rocky yeah. 3 specifically. Rocky 3 specifically, yeah. yeah. You pitied the fool. Yeah. I'm going to punch you. What am I doing? I was about to do Mr. T impression, and I did Red Fox. That's all I could do. And the big one. Yeah. That's inherently racist. But it's good that you admitted it. You so ugly. I stab your face in dough and make gorilla cookies. I don't even know what that means, but it's a joke from San Francisco. Stamp your face in dough and make gorilla Cookies. It, I don't know what the fuck that means. It is interesting. Great, like the, all of the talk because <laughs> you know the, the, the pivot there is the gorilla cookies aren't a thing. I don't, maybe they were in the seventies. They, they might have been. A thing. been a, yeah. But no, I went to Did Comic Con. That? I went to so Comic Con weird. today, um, and Nerd. I went to Comic Con today because at twelve o'clock noon, your hero, an hour after it opened, your favorite person, Tana Coates was going to have an event. Because Tanisi Coates has been writing the uh, Black Panther series for Marvel for the last couple of years, I don't know how. Long. I thought I got discontinued. But, but the reason I went is because he was not alone at the event. Um, a friend of mine from college, a kid named Jason Reynolds, um, who actually just wrote a young adult novel adaptation of um, Miles Morales, who is the new younger um, Spider-Man person. Um, in the Marvel universe. And my, my friend Jason actually wrote this adaptation for Marvel and he was on this panel with Ta-Nehisi and I went and oddly enough, you know, going, I, I was wondering like, do I ask a question when the time comes? Do I talk to him afterwards? Do I try to do in person what I've been unable to make happen from afar? And, um, I decided no, I'm not going to do that, despite the fact that I was somehow magically moved from the back of the line to the very front of the line, because when I arrived, I hate lines and I just did some jujitsu and found that I was the first person inside. No, I didn't spend any money. It's just it's my aura. Um, I go and I'm at the front of the line. I'm let in first. I am placed in the front row and I'm just there like waiting for this event to start. I'm like, man, there are so many reasons why I could like create an incident. But <laughs> this was... Wow. I love you didn't say like have a reasonable discussion. No, like, there's no, yeah, there was no opportunity the for a yeah, exactly. reasonable discussion. Bag. That's yeah. just, that's the thing. I mean, it's an event at Comic-Con. The kids who are there, um, some of them admire Ta-Nehisi, I imagine, for his political polemicist work. Um, I... I was there because my friend Jason like is on stage with a very accomplished writer 
whose work I don't have any um, affection for. Um, and I've never read his comic, but his other work I have no affection for. Um, and I, I wanted to support Jason. So I didn't go and create any sort of incident. And I will say that of all of the things of Ta-Nehisi's I've been exposed to, um, this was the least cringeworthy and was occasionally endearing. And I am glad that he so graciously ensured that my buddy Jason got like a lot of shine and continued what? to turn the attention back towards Jason. Yes. So really, really happy for that. All of that, all of that said, Can you stop talking. I'm talking to Matt. <laughs> yeah. you hear this? Yeah, yeah. No. Did you hear what just happened? No. Yeah. Wow. He soft. He, he's, that was like amazing. <laughs> it's like yeah. when you get close to the jock and you yeah. sniff it, this can, is not, can, can we drop can I, in the audio right here where Patty Hearst says, I am Tanya. I am a revolutionary. <laughs> You have just been captured by this the Symbionese Liberation Army, no, and you yeah. are in love with your captors. No, yeah. no, no. Yeah. All of wow. that. All of that said, Tanahisi, Death to the fascist cockroach that Tani, plays on the people. Tanahisi <laughs> made headlines this week because he shows up on late night. Um, and he shows up on late night, walks out on stage to thunderous applause from the crowd, sits down with um, Mr. Colbert, who proceeds to interview him, who initially calls him, uh, refers to him as a genius, knowingly saying, well, I know you you guys don't like to be referred to as genius, MacArthur Grant recipient. And uh, Ta-Nehisi blushes, um, like physically blushes and covers his mouth <laughs> like, a, like a geisha girl and turns away. Uh, and I'm not diminishing his masculinity. This is physically I think you're what running he down is. You definitely, um, when you compared him to I mean, that's Japanese what he did. Geisha, yeah. That's what he did. Blushing. Yeah. <laughs> Blushing. Um, and uh, at, at another point, uh, he's also <laughs> referred to as the leading black intellectual. And in this well, very, yeah, in this very interview suggests um, that uh, he is not optimistic about the prospects for America. Um, that he suspects that we are, we are in, we are in deep trouble. Uh, and at some point at least suggest, I don't know what's going to happen. You should talk to your priest about that. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm sad. I didn't get that. It, we watched that interview. Yeah. It's like watching Rasputin well, in real time. I mean, it's, it's, the thing, it's the thing about the guy that I find like so, so confusing. And I suppose you have to stay on brand, but you just experienced this thing. You're on national television. You're being celebrated. You're being filleted. We've been we've been criticized for using uh, uh, words like that on this podcast. We have uh, on television. Yeah, we but, but, by we, but who? Means well, M and Anthony Fisher was on online. Um, but it's okay. But, um, but, but we were no, we criticized are. by Fisher. Or no, no, but Anthony Fisher was criticized by a listener on online. We don't have to. We don't have to get into that. I bet Mel. I bet Mel. Yeah, but he said. But, but when he does talk, he talks about people getting. <laughs> Um, but but do you think Melbourne's still living? I, it happened. I don't get it either. It, it's yeah. okay. It's all right. But at any rate, I'm just saying that when you are this successful, when you're this enormous, when you go to Comic Con and it's there are people sitting on the floor because we've run out of seats. They'd been waiting in line for an hour before it started. You are not only the most celebrated writer in the country on any given day. When you write something, it's a national media event. When you write something about the, the desperate awfulness of America, the dire straits that it's in, your conviction, your certainty that the reason why Donald Trump won the election is only exclusively because of his whiteness, um, something that you've never felt the need to substantiate because everyone just agrees on this point. Um, it's odd to me that you can still be filled with hopelessness. It's just not credible. 
It's just not credible. I, or, or it's consistent. No, but it's not credible, dude. Honestly, I mean, like I watched you, him today and, and he's he's making the room full of people like laugh. Like they're just they're they're delighted. And there was one moment that stood out to me where he d- dismissed critics um, by saying something along the lines of and, and, and perhaps it wasn't it, it's not fair to characterize it as a dismissal, but it, it sort of sat with me in a, in an icky way where he says, you know, you spend so much time writing something and you publish it and you put it online and, you know, someone else reads it for 30 minutes and they're unhappy with it. And I mean, you just can't, can't really respond to, to things like that. And I thought, you know, dude, other people spend a great deal of time thinking about these things too. Uh, and your unwillingness to engage some of those other people who have contrary perspectives, who are deeply critical of your work. Um, but we've set up this thing that, with him, that which is, is very particular, that you don't have to engage with those people. And I think that's one of the tragedies of, of like the way modern kind of political discourse, particularly around this issue, uh, like I wouldn't, I'm, I don't want to talk about stuff like this ever. Mm-hmm. Why would I want to talk about it? What good is it for me? And that's actually, that's cutting off a number of, not myself, I'm, I probably don't have anything to add to it, but people Untrue. who do have things to add to it are just cut out of the debate. And I said this a million times because I wrote this a long time ago, this exact sentence. And I've said it on the show a bunch of times and I hate to repeat myself, but you know, when the most toxic charge in public life requires the lowest evidentiary standard, it does exclude a number of people from the debate who are simply worried about their careers and worried about, do I need to wrestle with this when I can talk about Catalonia? You know, when, 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 um, Donnie Seacoats is like, I don't have to bother with that shit. He's right. He's, he doesn't. I mean, and, and, and you see there, like, it, it, you see it, it, it's left again. This is kind of the free speech thing these days, and it kind of bums me out, is that it's left again to these kind of people on the right who have accepted that they are not going to be part of the mainstream, like sort of Kyle Smith and people like this, and or a black intellectual who says, well, I can do this. Uh, Thomas, what is his name? Thomas Chitterton Williams, who mm-hmm, wrote something mm-hmm. very good, is a really, great really smart guy. London Review of Books. London Review of Books, yeah. and was criticized because he wrote a kind of nice uh, review of Coates' book in the Washington Post, and then he wrote a longer, more critical review in the LRB. And that's people like the guy in, that you mentioned in commentary who is like a liberal mm-hmm. Jamaican-American professor who's been critical. Um, but, you know, I find it so oppressive in a way. I suppose I shouldn't use that word in this context. I'd be jumped on. <laughs> no, yeah. I say it's okay. Yeah, well, I put it this way. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's suffocating is probably the better word. There you go. Is that, you know, I mean, I oppressive, like I mean, oppressive in, in, in maybe the second or third definition in the, in the OED. But it's like, it is suffocating to the fact that like I want, I used to really like talking about this stuff. I really, I used to really like reading about this stuff. Because I thought I didn't have any answers to it, but I would read all these weird people on these issues and, and come up, you know, like, oh, maybe that's true. Now I don't even bother. What is the point? And that's the way it's designed. I mean, it's designed to be a trap in which mm-hmm. you will be accused of, you know, white privilege or something yes. or you yeah. know, being part of the white supremacist sort and of the valves, the valves I, for, I, I for like, you can't, uh, we've, I just don't one final thing is that we've diminished the, the, these very powerful and potent phrases that exist for a reason. White supremacy is something of, that I would define as people who believe in the supremacy of the white race, very straightforward. Mm-hmm. And that's no longer the case. Um, 
I sent you guys a, a link while we were doing the show of somebody at Slate writing a piece mm -hmm. about the white privilege of um, TSA pre-check or something, which is like 80 bucks. That's all it costs, you know, it really, and, and that's yeah, it. And you don't have, you don't I have. I can't a, recommend it high. I mean, it's so enough. good. And, oh and if you don't, if you don't have a criminal record, and if you have like eighty bucks, it's all it costs. But it's like this is like the moment. It was some platinum and century, and Amex will reimburse you. Yeah, you know, yeah, cost. that's true. That's true. Um, and it is, it is true. <laughs> I'm a platinum, I, and I keep on missing the meeting to, to set it up. Speaking of the African American Express card, we got to get out of here and have Camille start buying this drink. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what, we, we should probably talk before we go though about the Harvey Harvey Weinstein Listen, letter. Yeah, I was gonna it's I was gonna say mother of all some idiots wrote this. Please, yeah. please, and, and uh, explain to us what happened, Matt. So I've only I've dabbled in slightly more than Moynihan uh, did. Uh, full disclosure of our methods here. <laughs> so we text each other before the show and the texts usually go like this. Uh, 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 you know, here's the door code to the studio. Uh, who's going to, you know, uh, is anyone going to buy beer? We didn't really do that tonight, but, you know, whatever. Or, you know, what's the alcohol situation? And then uh, uh, it's, is Moynihan going to show up? And then, uh, and then. Uh, <laughs> That's a recent thing. And then like Moynihan, uh, I'm going to be there in, in 10 minutes. Uh, I just, I, I need to murder someone on 34th Street. Yeah. Um, and so we're going Trapped through this. And we got that, uh, that text uh, message from Moynihan. And we said, be prepared to read the Harvey Weinstein uh, letter uh, in dramatic uh, whatever voice, uh, Don Reckles in, in glass voice, as it turns out. Uh, Otherwise or, known as my normal voice. Or your or normal, normal voice. Yeah. And he said, text it to me uh, so I can uh, ha have a look at it. Harvey Weinstein, uh, chairman, CEO of Miramax, legendary kind of Jabba the Hutt figure in independent cinema, a heavyweight. They always kiss his ass. He's in the front row of the Oscars. Um, incredibly damning uh, piece in, I think the New York Times is the first one, but there's a cavalcade of pieces coming out against him of him just saying things to people like, come in here, baby. You want to see me take a shower? Really? To like Ashley Judd. Yeah. Uh, so women on the record. I'd be impressed if he said it to Winona Judd. Uh, <laughs> uh, women on the record, some of them famous, some of them not. It turns out he has settled eight sexual harassment lawsuits. He is yeah. like, uh, I, I mean, he has more of a paper trail than Roger Ailes did. Yeah. Than uh, certainly Eric Bowling uh, did. And these other people, I don't think he's striking out every time. He's probably a volume shooter. I mean, it sounds like he's a volume shooter and, yeah. and it's, and it's similar things like a woman on her first day of work, mm -hmm. uh, coming in. He's like, I'll make you a star, baby. You're going to yeah. go far here. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Give me that loofah. So yeah. sexy. Uh, and he's a big fat shit. I mean, he's an <laughs> ugly son of a bitch. Yeah. Yeah, just oily, awful. Yeah. And so uh, these stories are coming out, and we'd, we've heard about them for like the last two days. It finally came out today, and I don't know if the letter came before or after the story. They published it simultaneously, but he sent a letter to the New York Times. And we have this regular feature called Some Idiot Wrote This on this program. And who came up with that name, by the way? I, I did. Was it you? Yep, totally me. I actually thought about the other day. I can't remember who thought. Yeah, yeah, no, it yeah, was yeah, me. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. Okay. He's very confident with that. Yeah, he's very confident. I, I'll, I mean, I'll give him credit. I'll right. give him credit. Uh, pretty good. Uh, so that it, that has stuck with us. Of all <laughs> of the things, is this some idiot sexually assaulted this? I mean, that's <laughs> no, no. It, the piece of he's writing. Yeah. So I, I, we sent this. Uh, Fisher uh, sent this uh, to uh, to Moynihan to read, and Moynihan, good on him, understanding yeah. the art of the situation yeah. as a thespian. <laughs> yes. As someone who knows both Red Fox and Don Rickles, the that's whole right. span. That's right. Between those men and everything that that encompasses yeah. about modern America and black sure. bodies. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so uh, he reads about a third of the way through. Uh, it's the first first two sentences. First two sentences. And he says, I, I can read no more. 
Yeah. I need to make it fresh in my yeah, mind. So he doesn't yeah. really know. I don't know what's in this. He doesn't really know it's what's true. going on. I don't know how he's going to play this, but this is really one of the five worst things that I have ever read from a human being in any context. It's okay, Harvey so Weinstein's this... letter to the New York Times in response yeah. to him knowing that they're writing a piece on all the goddamn sexual harassment suits and please wash my balls uh, yeah. orders to his underlings over a period of years. It appears to be one page, um, so I think I can probably get through it, and we'll annotate it as we go. Um, and I will just do this in the same voice that I do the the uh, my work that I do during the day, um, as if I'm reading a script. So I don't want to do Harvey Weinstein's voice, because I'll probably get in trouble for that. So... Let's start with the sentence that I read. This is the top of Harvey Weinstein's um, uh, apology letter. I came of age in the 60s and 70s <laughs> when all the rules about behavior and workplaces were different. That was the culture then. I mean, not it's actually not really. <laughs> you watched Mad Men a whole bunch and you thought like it was still uncool to take your dick out in like 1965. And by the way, you were like 18 years old. So if you're like the, the guy in the mailroom taking his dick out, you're just an asshole at that point. You don't even like you don't have anything to trade. There's no horse trading here. Moynihan, your dad, my dad. They were in the workforce in 1965. Sure they were. And your dad, I'm sure, is a douchebag. And yeah. my dad- He's I dead, so thank you very much, but, but go ahead. I said what? Yeah. Yeah. I said well, what? Okay, okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> respect. Uh, my dad, not, I wouldn't call him a douchebag, uh, but uh, but he would, neither of those no, guys I, were taking I, I, their dicks I out. I assure you that this or, was not okay. Or having like yeah. their secretaries come was in. Was it more common? For sure. Yeah. But when you're starting that way, you're off on the wrong, the wrong, uh, uh, wrong foot. Um, I have since learned it's not an excuse since the 60s. By the way, that's that good. was 50 years ago. That's good. I've since learned it's not an excuse in the office or out of it to anyone, which doesn't make sense to what to anyone to what that doesn't connect to the previous sentence. Sorry, so, somebody should have edited this. Wait, so he was he was doing the the loofah business outside of the office. Yeah, it didn't like, matter. Recently, didn't matter. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. He's since yeah. learned. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, happened, since, I, I, since he discovered the New York Times well, was look, doing a write up. He's just saying that yeah. he honed his craft in the sixties and seventies. <laughs> he was doing it like three weeks ago. <laughs> I realized some time ago that I need to be a better person, and my interactions with the people I work with have changed the interactions. Huh. As if he's at the coffee machine saying, like, did you see the playoff game? It's like, no, you're literally taking a single ball out. <laughs> and then, like, hey, let's talk about this, and you want to be in a movie. That's, like, not an interaction. That's, like, that's like harassment versus, like, sex crime. I appreciate the way I've been—I appreciate the way I've behaved with colleagues in the past has caused a lot of pain, and I sincerely apologize for it. We'll let the apology stand. I appreciate— the way I've it does it. It's not ahead. English. Ahead. It's yeah. somebody trying to get out of something. Though I'm trying to do better, I now I know I have a long way to go. That is my commitment. My journey now will be to learn about myself and conquer my demons. Oh yeah, the de this is my favorite thing. Is because they're they're individual demons within you. You can't control. Yeah. It's not about you. Yeah. Over the last year, I've asked Lisa Bloom. I don't know who's Lisa Bloom. Uh, I think she's a well-known uh, lawyer. Okay, I've asked Lisa Bloom to. <laughs> <laughs> to tutor me, and she's put together a team of people. So uh, basically right now, Harvey Weinstein's saying they have a team that is his anti-rape squad <laughs> that is going to surround him all, at all times and keep his dick in his pants. Giving him the very important knowledge, which is obscure up until yeah. this point, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. that it's not okay, not okay to tell someone on their first day at work at the place that you run that's yes. powerful um, that 
they need to come and wash your balls. Quick, yeah, quick, quick, quick point about Lisa Bloom. She released a statement on Twitter that includes the statement that Harvey is deeply bothered by some of his emotional responses and has been working on his temper for over 10 years. Over 10 years? Wow, that's it. Yeah. Is he, I think he's working. Is he making any progress? Because he's just been working on it. He, co- he goes on here after Lisa Bloom. I brought, <laughs> I brought on therapists, and I plan to take a leave of absence from my, comp- my company. Yeah, that's really not your choice. And to deal with this issue head on. I so, this is like Trumpian in the way it's written. I so respect all women and regret what happened. (laughs) I so respect all women and regret what happened. So the man who controls the entertainment industry of this country is not only like a sex pest, but he's also illiterate. I hope that my actions will speak louder than words. Your previous actions, which was like molesting Ashley Judd, spoke pretty loud. And that one day will be able to earn, oh god this is great will <laughs> be able to earn the earn their trust and sit to get down together with lisa it's not just gonna be me and you girls because that didn't work out well last time lisa will be there <laughs> to learn more jc jc wrote in how does one pronounce it 444 yeah i'm not the man i thought i was and i and I better be that man for my children. Except he never, never wrote that, apparently. Oh, so he misquotes. So Jay-Z is the new Winston Churchill, like <laughs> apocryphal quotes. Um, so for his the children, he's going to stop molesting starlets. While quoting Jay-Z. Well, yeah, the same is true for me. I want a second <laughs> chance in the community, but I know I've got work to do to earn it. I have goals that are now priorities. Trust me. This isn't an overnight process. (laughs) Actually, you you know what it is? It is actually. It's an overnight. (laughs) Stop it. Stop doing that. I don't. I keep my dick in my pants at work. Stop it. (laughs) Fucking Jesus. These people are psychos. I've been trying to do this. I've been trying to do this for 10 years. And this is a wake up call. (laughs) So it's a slow boil with him. I cannot cannot be more remorseful. But the people I hurt, and I plan to do right by then. Now, there's a pivot. This is the last paragraph, people. Gird yourself, because it's about to get very good. I'm going to need a place to channel that anger. So, <laughs> so as I'm going to, can I ad lib his line here? I'm just going to add a little M dash here. I'm going to need a place to channel that anger. So rather than sexually harassing the people that I work with, <laughs> I've decided that I'm going to give the NRA my full attention. Wait, what? <laughs> what the fuck just happened? The fuck just happened? We were, I thought we were talking about Jay-Z. Everything Is this cool. motherfucker <laughs> literally exploiting the tragedy in, in Las Vegas? Yeah, absolutely is. <laughs> Because he can't keep his dick in his mouth? Yes. Are you fucking kidding no. me? No. I hope Wayne LaPierre of the NRA <laughs> will enjoy his retirement party. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> He's retiring because you you squeezed Rose McGowan's ass? What the fuck is happening? I'm going to do it at the same place I had my bar mitzvah. What? what? Is- He's literally what he's losing his about. mind. I don't know. He's jackknifed over his flying fist right now. What <laughs> <laughs> the fuck is he talking about? I'm making a movie about our president. What? Yeah, I, I, by the way, did he ever accuse the president of being like a scumbag for, for saying grab him by the pussy? I just, somebody looked that up. I don't know. Um, I'm going to make a movie about our president. Perhaps we can make it a joint retirement party. 
Uh, I'm confused. One year ago, I began organizing a $5 million foundation to give scholarships to women directors at USC, who then would come into my office and I would watch me masturbate in the corner. I mean, have you seen those irate, those Persian chicks? All right, here's, and here's the final sen- sentence. Oh, God. Well, this might seem coincidental. <laughs> it has been I was final two sentences. Excuse Doesn't me. seem coincidental. Why this? While this might seem coincidental, I mean, he's been working on it for ten years. He's clearly like, I'm going to head it off the past by doing some like Gloria Steinem scholarship for Catherine McKinnon studies or something. Mm-hmm. While this might seem coincidental, it has been in the works for a year. It will be. Oh God, please! No. <laughs> this is the last sentence, everybody, and then we're going to leave you for the day because this is the ultimate. My, some idiot wrote this, and we are out on this sentence, and it will be named after my mom, and I won't <laughs> disappoint her. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Harvey Weinstein, <laughs> the richest, stupidest man in America. Some idiot wrote this. Keep your cock in your pants. <laughs> was fucking crazy unbelievable unbelievable i i i I guess i blanked out the bar mitzvah part like the the jay-z then wayne lapierre jay-z his bar mitzvah his mom trump masturbation i think oh my god i I actually hot persian chicks i mean I, i don't have any sympathy for him at all as oh, he's an abuser of women, he's gonna Lisa butt. Bloom. But doesn't this read what? like someone Anthony who Fisher might be at the end something. of their rope? Lisa Bloom's mother is Gloria Allred. Wow. Sure. And he and she also uh, uh, helped uh, take down Bill O'Reilly. Uh, yeah, no, he's he's hired everybody possible in this situation. He's got a lot of all money. of the all of the guns, and he's suing the New York Times, or he's claiming that he's going to sue the. He's New not going to. He's not going to do that anymore. No, that. That no. letter, for all its, you know, cascading incoherence, was also an admission of guilt. So I, I, he, he best not see the New York Times. Yeah. So thank not God. specific, but it was like, you know, I'm sorry for the activities. And I mean, have the, the thesaurus was like right next to him during that. Thank God he has tutors now, though. Yeah. That's... He is. A, he has in the the anti-rape squad <laughs> <laughs> that is around him like superheroes <laughs> in Tight. Uh, well, they can't have tight outfits on because get. He might get a little frisky. But, no, but there we go. That was that was it. Wow. I gotta go. I, I've got nothing else. Let's I got go. nothing. Let's go. Bye. Get out. Bye. Yeah. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.